Good morning. My name is Mark Meifer. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and it's good to be together and to consider the topic of, is the Bible reliable? I guess the uh, video presents that there's a lot of reasons why someone might think that it's not. Um, there are some pretty wild miracles uh, that are described in the Bible, and it could seem like maybe this is just made-up stuff. I mean, a uh, a whale swallowing a prophet and keeping him alive for three days before he's coughed up on the shore. You've got a guy like Elijah who's, who's whisked up to heaven in a chariot. He never dies. You've got Jesus walking on water, changing water to wine, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, and he himself being raised from the dead. You've got floods, and you've got people walking through big seas and across rivers, and, and it's just easy to think, this, this stuff is just made up. This stuff doesn't happen. The miracles in the Bible make it really hard to believe that it's reliable. For some, it's the claims in the Bible that, that, that there actually is a God who created everything out of nothing, that he has a son, his name is Jesus, and it's through faith in him and only through him that you can go to heaven and have a relationship with God. For others, it's some of the strange practices that seem really outdated with today practices that come out of the Old Testament that say, you know, you, you shouldn't wear clothing with mixed fibers. I'm not sure if this would pass or not, but you know, you can't mix the wools and the cottons together. There's things you can do and things you can't do in terms of uh, certain days of activity in the Sabbath. You got to rest on that day and there's food that you can eat and food you can't. There's strange practices in the Old Testament, what you do with disobedient kids and you you stone them and you just go, what in the world is going on here? Uh, you, you've got some of these things that seem repressive and out of date, whether it's teachings about women or sexuality or slavery. And then, then there's just the picture of who God is in the, in the Bible. A lot of people, they get to the Old Testament, they start reading about God, and, and the only picture you have of God is he's, he's an angry God, he's full of wrath, and, and you go, that, that's not the kind of God I'm interested in. So there's a lot of reasons why I could see someone here today, maybe you today, really question the reliability of the Bible. Yet the interesting thing is we live in a country where, survey says, 75% of Americans believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And that's through some of the recent surveys that came out of Gallup back in this last year. 19%, though, would say that this thing is just really a collection of myth and legends, not at all the word of God. And year after year, the Bible continues to be the best-selling book. Last year, it was over $600 million of sales for the Bible. Well, as we consider this second question in our series, Questioning Christianity, let's just go back, if anybody's joining us for the first time. Last week, we talked about, is there a God, and how can we know? A couple of important things just to remember. We talked about whether you're a theist or an atheist, someone who believes in God or doesn't believe in God, that... Even doubts require a step, a measure of faith. I can't prove to you scientifically, can't put God in a, in a test tube that says that here, here's evidence for God. I, I can prove it to you without any measure of doubt. In the same way that you can't prove to me God's non-existence. So we agree that as we come to an understanding of this world that we live in, there's a measure of faith required for both those positions, seeing God at the center of the universe or God not even a part of the universe. And then we looked at some clues from the world that we live in to say, are these clues any way pointing to the idea that there is a God? So we looked at the clue of creation. We talked about two different things in the clue of creation. We talked about what lies beyond and behind creation. If you believe that it all started with a big bang, 
The question is, what caused the Big Bang? Who caused the Big Bang? Is it possible that there's a God who stands apart from creation that put this whole thing into existence, or do you just believe in the concept of eternal matter or something actually starting out of nothing? Then we talked about the whole thing of design and the order of creation and how is it possible that the design and order of creation that we see every day that we live here on this earth, planet earth, is actually pointing to the clue that there's a designer, that there's somebody who's made it all, and that's why there's order in the world that we live in. And then the second clue that we talked about was this whole matter of conscience. It's an internal clue. It's this whole thing of saying innate in each of us that transcends culture. So it's not just what people tell us, but we know it in our heart of hearts that some things are right and some things are wrong. And no matter what somebody would say about some of those things that we think are wrong, we're not going to be convinced otherwise. Napalming babies is always wrong. And we know that. And is it possible that that whole sense of of a moral obligation is in each of us because there's a moral God who's created us in his image, a God who's holy and just. So we looked at that, and today we're going to talk about the whole thing of the Bible's reliability. So I need a volunteer, and I need somebody who's lived long enough that we could say, you should know certain things about this world and a lot more than some of us that haven't lived as long. So if this is a circle that represents everything there is to know in this universe right now, everything that's happened in the past and everything that's going to happen in the future. What percentage, what part of this whole universe of knowledge do you have? So anybody want to just come and indicate by however you want to draw it in here, what percentage of knowledge you think you have of all knowledge there is to know? So I need a volunteer. Okay, come on up here. All right, sir, give us your name. Uh, Tom, All right, Tom, why don't you take the green one? Tom, thanks for helping us out here, why don't you uh, just indicate. All right, there it is. It's probably smaller. No, it's probably smaller. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Let's hear it for Tom. Let's give it up for Tom. That was great. Yeah. Now, my guess is if you came up here like Tom, you'd have done the same thing. In fact, the three times that we've done this, and I didn't talk to you, Tom, right, beforehand, you just came and you did. We're all going to say, man, there's so much knowledge out there. I, I don't know a lot. And I guess it would be just good to do this. Because this would then represent what? What we don't know. And what I'm just going to say to you as you find yourself wrestling with the claims of Christianity, is it possible in this area that we don't know, and I I guess it's safe to say it's up in the 99th percentile, right? We don't know that much of all that there is to know. Is it possible in that area that you would agree and say, "I, I don't know everything, is it possible that there is a God And if it is possible, is it plausible to think that if there's a God who created us, that he'd want to speak to those that he's created? And is it possible that if he did want to speak to those he's created, that the Bible is actually the communication that God has given us that tells us about who he is, tells us about this world and how it works and why we're here and where we're going and how we got here? And so what we're going to do today is, again, we're, we're not going to argue, which would be easy to do. Well, the reason you should trust the Bible is the Word of God is because it says it's the Word of God. Come on, figure it out. Well, you'd say real easily, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that today. But there's a lot of reasons from within the Scriptures 
what it claims to be. But what we're going to do, again, is look at some clues. We're going to look at historical accuracy. That's our first clue. Does, we're going to treat this like any other ancient text and say, does it pass the mustard test of being an authentic, reliable document? Then we're going to talk about the internal consistency of the Bible. And then finally, dare I say, the cultural relevancy of the Bible. We heard a lot of funny things on the video interviews about completely not relevant at all to my life today. So let's take the first one then, historical accuracy. The, the bottom line question is this. Why should I trust a book that I, that I don't have the original copy of? We, we heard one of the guys says, well, man, we, we just have translations. upon we, We've got, it's, what do you say, five million translations. And it's really important to remember that the book that we have today, the modern translation of the Bible, is not a translation of other English translations, of other English translations, going back finally to the Latin translations, of the Greek translations, of the Hebrew translation. What we have are good translations that go back to the earliest manuscript evidence that we have written in those original languages. So let's just talk about one of the tests that the textual critics will use, because there actually is a science that lies behind trying to figure out what did these documents originally say it, are, are they credible documents? There's a quantity test. How many documents? How much manuscript evidence do we have? The more, the more of the manuscripts that we have, the better. The fewer, it's a little more iffy. Then there's the age test. The age test is not how old is the manuscript, but how far removed is the manuscript from the original writing? Okay? And then the third is the quality of the manuscript. Not only the legibility of it, but the quality of man- manuscript evidence. Does it come from one place, from several places? Is there corroboration there, even in different languages? It's the quality test. So let's talk about the manuscript evidence relative to quantity. And here's what we have. 14,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament, 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, if you haven't studied manuscript evidence of ancient documents, that really doesn't mean anything to you. But it means everything when you start hearing about the other kind of manuscript evidence that backs up books that none of the scholars even question in terms of its reliability and authenticity. For example, Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have ten copies of it, eight copies of Herodotus' history, seven copies of Plato, in all these date over a thousand years beyond when it was originally written. Nobody doubts the reliability of books like that or add to it Tacitus' Roman, uh, Roman history, the Annals of Imperial Rome, or Josephus' works, the Jewish Wars. Nobody doubts those. And so the, the manuscript evidence that we have for the Bible is off the charts, big time, a lot of it. Now, let me talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, there's a shepherd wandering around the back hills of the Dead Sea area, very deserty area, and he's throwing some rocks to pass the time of day. He threw a rock inside a cave, and all of a sudden, he heard something crash. He goes, what was that? He climbs up into the cave, and he finds this urn, just like the one up on the picture there. That's actually one of the urns that they found from the cave. And inside the urn were these scrolls. In fact, there were a lot of these urns and a lot of these scrolls hidden in a lot of these caves as these scriptures were protected by the Essenes way back a thousand years prior to the most ancient documents that we had. Up until 1947, 
The oldest manuscript that we have at the Old Testament was A.D. 900. It was called the Leningrad Codex. And so what was, what was interesting is, not only did just about every book except for the book of Esther get represented in the manuscript evidence. So 26 of the 27 Old Testament books were representing these scrolls. But now we have an ability to compare and to find out how reliable were the documents that we were looking at at 900. How much has changed? Because you and I have played the, the telephone game and it doesn't take 900 days, 900 years. It doesn't take 900 days. It doesn't take 900 people. You can get nine people sharing the same message. At the end of the line, you go, well, that wasn't anything from where we started. And so what was interesting is that the textual critics started getting after it all. And they used a book like the book of Isaiah to compare one to the other. And what they found is incredible accuracy and consistency. And when there were any variations, it was something very simple and easy to explain. Up, he lost a letter. Up, he jumped down to the next line in the text. Very easy things. And so there was great affirmation, not only in the transmission and the careful transmission of the text, but there also was now this certainty of the scriptures, actually, that Jesus had. Because the Dead Sea Scrolls go back to 100 to 200 B.C. So these would be the very scrolls that Jesus would have been reading from in his day. And what we know about what Jesus thought about those scriptures is that that was the word of God. And he talked about in John 17, your word is truth. He talked about in John 10, 35, that God's word couldn't be broken. He talked to his disciples at the end of Luke, we'll look at it in a bit, how all the scriptures from Moses to the prophets speak of me. He was talking about these scriptures that Jesus himself said were God's word. So there's incredible accuracy going on, incredible manuscript evidence, not only the Old Testament, but of the New. Consider this in the New Testament. 5,366 separate Greek manuscripts. Take this one, P52, John Ryland Papyrus. The significance of this papyrus is the date of it. It goes back, they say, to about 117 to 138 A.D. John wrote his gospel somewhere around A.D. 90, scholars believe. That means this evidence is within 30 years of the original writing. Incredible. And the, the, the New Testament evidence goes on and on, and it's huge. Think about this. The New Testament is made up of 181,000 words. When all the manuscript evidence is looked at and everything's tried to put together, there's only 400 words where there's variations or what they call variants, 400. None of them have to do with any significant understanding of the text or any cardinal doctrine of the faith. In fact, Sir Frederick George Kenyon, the head librarian of the British Museum, says this about the New Testament evidence. The New Testament text is far better attested than that of any other work of ancient literature. Its problems and difficulties arise not from the deficiency of evidence, but from an excess of it. In the case of no work of Greek or Latin literature, do we possess manuscripts so plentiful in number or so near the date of composition? So the manuscript evidence is unbelievable, not only its quantity, but also in the date, how close it is to the original, and the quality of it that we have. Because it's not just back in the, in the original Hebrew and, and in the Greek, but we have other Latin translations, Armenian translations, Coptic from Egypt translations, and there's great corroboration from the manuscript evidence. But some of you might think, well, big deal. I didn't tell you about Homer. 
Homer's Iliad is the, is the most attested, 647 manuscript of Homer's the Iliad. But all of those, nine to, 900 to 1,000 years, but you could say, well, big deal we have all this manuscript. What if the Bible's just like the Iliad? Just a fanciful legend. That's a really important question. So let's just wrestle with that. Is the Bible a compilation of a bunch of legends and myth? First thing to think about. Up until about 300 years ago, fiction did not involve the level of detail that we're used to when we pick up a novel. There's all kinds of detail. That's 300 years ago. Before that, you just didn't have. There's way too much detail in the Bible to pass as this genre that we would call fiction, the stuff of legends and myths. Consider a couple of passages, one from the Old, one from the New Testament, to kind of make a case in point here. Jeremiah starts his book with these words. And listen to all the historical references and details. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Anon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. You hear all the detail that's going on there? 17, as I counted at least, references that are historical in nature. Look at Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. 14 references, historical details. It's huge. So the Bible doesn't read like fiction. Okay? Now let me give you some facts of the New Testament that work against it being a myth. Number one, the New Testament is written way too early for a myth or a legend to carry the day. There's eyewitnesses still living when these documents were written, and it would have been very easy for someone to say, this is a bunch of hocus-pocus, this is a bunch of hooey, this didn't happen, I was there. See, it's way too early for this to have been myth or legend. And then consider these things as you think about the possibility of this being a man-made work. You wouldn't invent a crucified Savior. It wasn't a popular idea in that day. You wouldn't have women and shepherds be eyewitnesses of Jesus' birth and of his resurrection because their testimony wasn't even allowed in the court of law of that day. You wouldn't disparage the followers of Christ. I mean, there's a very honest description of who these guys are, and a lot of times they're thick-headed, they don't get it, there's petty jealousy, there's one-upmanship, they're betraying, they're denying him. That's not the kind of stuff you'd put in to make your case that this is a guy you ought to follow. And you wouldn't, for sure, include four Gospels. It's way too confusing. Just put one Gospel in there. And if you were to put four Gospels in, at least get four of the original 12 in there. And don't pick a tax collector because nobody trusted tax collectors. John Mark, who wrote Mark, he's not one of the 12. Luke, he's not one of the 12. And then you certainly, you certainly wouldn't put forth a legend that in following the legend would in that day end you up crucified just like Jesus. I mean, that's what was going on in the first and second, third, early part of the fourth century. 
people who claim to be followers of Christ were being persecuted and killed. It's not the stuff of legend. In fact, I'd say the story of the Bible is beyond making up. Consider this. As you think through the story of the Bible, maybe you've never read it, but here's how it starts. A God who creates everything out of nothing through the power of his word. A God who creates us in his image and has a relationship with those that he's created and asks them, Adam and Eve, to partner with him in this world. A God who brings a curse down on all things, all that is created, not only the people, but everything in this world physically is under the curse. And it's all done for simply disobeying one command. In fact, he only gave him one command. And for eating a piece of fruit, that this whole thing goes belly up. It's not the stuff you'd make up. A God who promised descendants as numerous as the sand of the seas and the stars of the heavens to a man who was 100 and his wife, Sarah, who was 90. A God who saves his people from famine by leading them into Egypt, only to read that they're turned into slaves, only to read that they're delivered from slavery and they walk through the sea of the Red Sea and they walk through the River Jordan. It's not the kind of stuff that we'd make up. A God who promised King David that he'd have a son a son who would never die, who would establish an eternal kingdom that would never end, a king who would suffer and die, though, for committing sins that he never committed, dying in the place of people who were treasonous and rebellious against him, a king who, when he shows up, everybody's looking for this promised Savior, the Messiah, and very few people even find him, the son of David, who's the son of God, who, get this, is born in a feeding trough, to a virgin, a young girl named Mary, to, uh, to a man named Joseph, who's just a carpenter from Nowheresville, Nazareth. A, a story that tells us that those who believe in this Jesus will find life, eternal life, fullness of life. Uh, a story that says that the paradise that was lost in Genesis is the paradise that's regained, and it's even better at the end of the story. This isn't the stuff that you make up. Let me suggest to you, this is God's truth. And I think the historical accuracy brings us to what we just talked about, the internal consistency. And I have to say, there's a lot of reasons you could believe that the Bible is true. From the historical accuracy that's been proved through a lot of different things, even from archaeology, to fulfill prophecy, which we'll look at in just a bit. But for me, as I've read the Bible longer and longer, the thing that continues to blow me away is the internal consistency, the unity of this Bible. And here's what's so significant. You may not know this. There's 66 books of the Bible written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years from all different kind of walks of life. They've written from three different continents about all kinds of different things and details. And yet there's a unique unity and coherence to the Bible. There's one singular message that speaks of God the Creator restoring all things to Himself through Christ. You find that very thing tucked away in the New Testament letter of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul says here in the second half of the verse, what I think is a great summation of what the whole Bible's about and what God's about in history, to bring all things in heaven and on earth back together again, under one leader, under one head, even Jesus Christ. And Jesus 
himself shows us that there's a unity when in Luke 24, verse 27, he points out from Moses to the prophets that all the scriptures are talking about him and he helped them get it, that he's the main point of the Old Testament. He's the main point of the New Testament. There's an incredible unity to the Bible that I just would say, consider it as a huge clue that this isn't like any other book, not at all like any other book. So let's talk about prophecy. Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Let me give you one from Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. Isaiah's writing about this guy named Cyrus 180 years before he's ever born. And what he says about this guy Cyrus is he's going to be raised up as this, this leader and he's going to wipe out the superpower of Isaiah's day, which was Babylon. And he was also going to wipe out Egypt and going to rule the whole known world. And he was going to release God's people from exile. This is 80 years before they even go into exile. And we know the date of when Isaiah wrote. So there's no confusion here about, oh, this was just written after all these things happened. No, it's clear when the book of Isaiah was written. He gives us the times and the dates historically of when he was writing. And it's amazing. It's amazing. There's a story that comes out of World War II. David Greenglass, he was a traitor, and he sold atomic secrets to to Russia. And after World War II, his conspirators were helping him to kind of escape from the pressure as he's being hunted down and get on with the new life. And so the plan was for him to meet the secretary, the Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. And there were these prearranged signs and, and directions that he, were, he was to follow so that this secretary would know he's got the right guy, Greenglass. So here's how they went. First sign. Upon arriving in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the secretary signing his name, I. Jackson. Two, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de Cologne in Mexico City. Three, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Four, with his middle finger placed in a guidebook, five, when he was approached, he was to say, what a magnificent statue, and six, to identify himself as coming from the state of Oklahoma. Random stuff. And upon that, and only upon that, was the secretary to give him his passport, which could move him into a new life, a new identity, freedom. The prearranged signs worked. Why? Real easy. You can't make this kind of stuff up. If you and I were looking for those kinds of signs and they happened in that kind of sequence, we know we got the right guy. We got the right guy. And the Bible doesn't give us six. In fact, I was reading this week that one guy has the numbers up to 456 different identifying features of Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. I haven't chased it all down. I just know there's a lot of them. And is it possible that the reason there's a lot of them is God doesn't want us to miss the identification. This is the one. Don't miss it. He's the man, your Savior, the one who can give you a new life. So let me just give you an example, just from one part of Jesus' life, his crucifixion. There's at least 25 different references in the Old Testament about Jesus' crucifixion. By the way, this is long before the Romans have ever used crucifixion as a, as a means of capital punishment. So let me just pick out a few things from the crucifixion and Jesus' death on the cross. 
In Zechariah eleven twelve, we read that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The Gospels tell us in Matthew 26, 14 and 15, that's exactly what Judas received for betraying Jesus. In Psalm 20, 22, 16, we are told that his hands and his feet would be pierced. The Gospels tell us in Luke 23, 33, that's exactly what happened. In Isaiah 53, that he'd be crucified, and it's kind of a random thing, with thieves. Mark tells us in chapter 15, that's exactly what happened. His garments would be gambled over. His bones would not be broken. His side would be pierced. Darkness would cover the land. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. It talked about his resurrection. That's just nine of those. If the six prearranged identifying features made it crystal clear for that ambassador, is it possible that all of prophecy that's fulfilled in Christ is to make it clear that he's the one He is this promised Son of God. And this book is more than any other kind of book. It's a book that comes from a God who knows all things, all things from past to present to future. And so I can hear somebody say, oh, okay, that's fine. But what about all the contradictions? Come on. There's thousands of them. Well, let me, let me just say this about contradictions, a couple of things. It's not a good idea to talk about contradictions that you've heard of instead of contradictions that you've come across. It's not unusual for someone to say something like that, say, wow, man, if there's that many contradictions, well, let's just give me two or three and let's talk about that. And I'll think, oh, two or three a little hard for me to come up with right now. So don't use that as an escape or an out to reading the Bible. And then second, don't get confused between the difference between a contradiction and an apparent contradiction. They're not the same thing. Let me give you an example, again, from the crucifixion of Christ. In the Gospel accounts, there's a sign that's nailed up over Jesus' head. It was typical in Roman history to put the charges of why this person is being crucified. So here's how Matthew reads the sign. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. John says, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. You say, well, those are contradictions. Those are apparent contradictions. A true contradiction would be something so far from that. It'd be something like, this is Maximus, son of James, traitor of Rome. Now, if one of them said that and the other... Now, now you're going, okay, that's clear. That's clear. What we have here is an apparent contradiction. It's very likely that the sign read something like this. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. I don't know if you've ever eyewitnessed an accident, but if you saw an accident, depending on what side of the intersection you were at, whether you were in a car or in a truck, behind the cars, in front of you, or a pedestrian on the corner, there's a lot of different angles that you could report on. And these guys are not writing the kind of history that you and I might be thinking they're writing. To be sure, the Bible speaks historically. God is revealing himself to real people in real places at real times, and much of the historical record and archaeology gives proof to those very things and places and customs. But it's, they're not writing a history book. It's historical, but it's so much more than that. 
They're presenting a case for who God is. It's a revelation from God about God. And so it wouldn't be surprising that as these eyewitness accounts come from Matthew or Mark's comes through Peter's eyes or, or Luke's from the, the evidence that he's gathered up from the followers of Christ who are eyewitnesses. It's not surprising that as they recounted what they had seen and experienced, that they didn't come up with exactly the same wording. It's not a contradiction. It's an apparent one that there's some rev- uh, resolution here as we harmonize what could have taken place here. And my advice to you is, if you're going to reject this as the, as the Bible that comes from God, don't do it on the contradictions. Don't do it there. Th- those things are so far off the center page of what's really going on here. If you're going to reject the Bible as God's word, here's where you need to do it. You've got to do it on Christ because that's what the scripture is about. You've got to say he's not the son of God. You've got to say he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And so if you can come to reading the Bible and saying he's not divine and he really didn't rise from the dead and he didn't die on the cross for our sins, then you, then you can chuck the whole thing. You don't even have to worry about a lot of the things that you might be worried about. Keep first things the first thing. And if you're going to wrestle with some things where you go, but you know what? I, I'm leaning towards those things, but I'm still wrestling. Then roll up your sleeve and give the Bible the benefit of the doubt Let it be innocent before proven guilty and look at what the scholars are saying, what the history says about some of these texts and backgrounds that could give you great insight. There's been a lot of things that troubled people for a long time and it looked like, man, this just doesn't make sense. And all of a sudden, we learn something from history, from archaeology that sheds light on it. We go, oh, that explains it. Am I saying that I've got an answer for every question you might have? Absolutely not. I am not the shell answer man on the Bible. But I have great confidence that what we have here in the Bible is reliable. The preponderance of evidence is way more on that side than on the other. So finally, let's talk about cultural relevancy. Now, I understand that it would be really easy for someone to say, completely irrelevant. You know, what do we hear what do we hear on the, uh, on the video? They talked about things like it doesn't relate to modern times. I want it in terms that I can understand. Pretty sure that the only Bible this young woman had read was probably the King James Version that goes back to 1611. And nobody speaks that kind of English anymore. None of us understand it very well. So um, let, let's talk about it. I, I think there's problems as it relates to um, maybe Old Testament laws and all the things going on there. Well, what's the deal with all these little things that... Well, what the deal is, number one, Christ has fulfilled the law so that that's not binding on a follower of Christ. We're not worried about the ceremonial law. The moral law that's described in the Ten Commandments, absolutely, that's binding, that moves forward. But all those little things, here's why God gave them. God said, I want to be your God. And the people said, well, we want to be your people. And God said, well, here's the deal. If you want to be my people, then you've got to be holy like me. What does it mean to be holy? Well, I'm going to set you apart because that's what the word means. I'm going to set you apart. And the way I'm going to make you distinct from everybody else is you're going to follow these these laws here that will make it clear to everyone else that you're not like everybody else. I'm going to set you apart so that you can be a light to everybody out there by the fact that you're different from everybody. So there is a mission at the heart of the law. And then there is a second mission, not only to reach people with the love of God, but to help God's people understand that they can't keep the law that they're lawbreakers, and they need a Savior. They need Christ who came and perfectly kept the law. 
All right, so that, that tells us a little bit about the law. We may be troubled about that. Some people may be troubled about, man, it talks about slavery. It even says, slaves, obey your masters in Ephesians chapter 6. What's up with that? Well, let's make it a really important distinction between slavery in the first century and slavery in our recent history here in America. Radically different. You actually could choose to become a slave. You could buy your freedom. You could be freed after a certain period of time. You could be a slave and have a higher class ranking than a person who's a freeman, a free woman. So it's a completely different mixture. And when the Bible talks about slaves obeying your, your master, it's not condoning slavery. It's just acknowledging this is a reality. And it goes on to then say, Masters, you treat your slaves with dignity. And then there's actually a letter in the Bible called Philemon where the Apostle Paul tells, a, tells his friend Philemon, Hey, listen, I ran into your runaway slave Onesimus. He was a great friend to me when I was suffering. And I'm sending him back to you. But I'm asking you, don't take him back as your slave. Take him back as your brother in Christ. The Bible speaks about slavery. You think about what's happened with the, the movement of abolition in our country and over in England. Who are the people that were running at the front of that movement? People who believed the Bible and what it said that were created in the image of God were not animals. They're not animals. They have dignity. It's the very foundations of the Word of God that led to the freedom of slaves. On areas like women and homosexuality, let me just say, the Bible's misunderstood if, if you think the Bible is always pushing women down. Nobody elevated women more than Jesus Christ did. It's a complete misunderstanding of the scriptures. On on an issue like homosexuality, the Bible speaks about homosexuality. But the Bible speaks just as much about adultery. And I would say don't let something like homosexuality or some other tangential issue, as important as it is to you, be a sidetracking issue that keeps you from the number one issue. Because you know, at the bottom, at the end of the day, the bottom line is this. If the Bible isn't the word of God, it has no claim in your life. You don't have to worry about what it says. You just walk away from it. So don't worry about homosexuality. Worry about, is this the word of God? And if it is, does it have any say in my life? Does it have any authority? At Door Creek, we believe it does. That's why our second value is the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth. But you may not be there, but that's how I'd encourage you to wrestle with these things. Now, let me just say this. The Bible is more than culturally relevant. It's personally relevant. And I'm going to give you a, kind of an interesting illustration. There's a guy named A.J. Jacobs. A year, uh, a year ago, his book came out. And what he decided to do is he was going to try for a year to live according to the commands of the Bible. So it was called the year of living biblically. And so he grew a beard because you're not supposed to trim the corner of your beard. And he didn't sure, wasn't really sure where the corner was, so he just grew it out. And he just followed it all. He even had stones in his pocket if he met an adulterer so he could stone an adulterer with you know, little pebbles. He had it all going. Now, he says this. He says, I'm a Jew. But he says, I'm as much a Jew as the Olive Garden is Italian. He says, I'm not really Jewish. I mean, I wasn't raised going to the synagogue. I don't really believe in God. I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. But then he goes on to explain. I, I saw this fascinating interview where he just gives a speech about how his life was affected when he tried to live for a year according to the Bible. And what he ends up saying is it had complete relevance to his life. So he said there's commands in the Bible that talks about being thankful. And I started being thankful. And, and I found out it just, it just affected my whole mindset in life. He said there's a command about keeping the Sabbath day holy, resting one day in seven. I didn't do any work on Saturdays. He said, I can't tell you how that changed my life. 
in this helter-skelter work world that we live in, this thing was relevant to me. He says, I, I don't believe in God, but there's something beautiful about reverence. It added value to his life. He, he made this amazing uh, uh, understanding that I used to think that how I think affects how I behave. And what I found out is my behavior can affect my thinking. And so here's a guy who doesn't even believe it. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe the Bible is the word of God. And what he's telling us is it was relevant to his life. I find that fascinating. So let me tell you personally, there isn't a relationship that you're in. There isn't a decision that you're going to need to make this, this week, this year. There isn't a dream that you have in which the Bible doesn't speak to it. It addresses me as a man. It tells me who I am, why I'm here, where I'm going. It teaches me how to live with integrity before God and others. It challenges me in every area of my life. It directs and it guides my actions, my thoughts. It helps me to know if I'm heading down the right path. It gives me wisdom for life and for, and for, for figuring out what's so confusing in life so often. It helps me to know what to do with guilt. It's not a book that enslaves. It's a book that frees. It's a book that fills me with hope, not despair. It speaks into every area of my life, whether it's my role as a dad, as a citizen, as a neighbor, as a son, a brother. And it doesn't stutter on the very practical things of how I fill out an expense report to how I fill my mind as I'm just thinking. It tells me how to treat people what to do with anxiety, how to be forgiving. There isn't a more relevant book that I could commend to you. None more relevant than the Bible. It is so relevant to where you're at right now. And what I'm asking, in all that you don't know, is it possible that there's a God, a God who made you and wants to let you know that he loves you a God who would send a love letter in the word that was his son. Jesus was called the word of God and the word written down, living word, the written word, to let you know that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. And if you're at a place where you go, well, I never read this thing before. What do I do? What I tell you to do is, if you don't have a Bible, please take the Bible in one of the chair racks in front of you. Take it home. It's our gift to you. It's in a modern translation that you should be able to read. Go to the table of contents, look up the book of Mark. It's one of the Gospels, one of the biographies on Jesus' life, and read it this week. And before you read it, here's what I encourage you to do. You just say, God, I don't even know if you exist, and I have no clue if this is from, from you or not. But if it is, open my eyes Open my heart, speak to me that I might know these things to be true. Let's pray. And so God, we're, we're here in different places. Some of us, our lives have been changed by this word. They continue to be changed by this word. And there's others of us that have lost their confidence in it. There's others of us that have absolutely no confidence in it. I pray that you'd meet us in the pages of your word as we pick it up this week and read it. We pray that we'd hear from you, that your Holy Spirit would get to the very core of our heart of hearts that we might, that we might know that this is your word that we can trust. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.